Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Monday, July 12th, we're studying Jeremiah chapter 32, verses 1 to 25. In the midst of the Babylonian siege of Jerusalem, the Lord tells Jeremiah to buy a field. Why in the world would he do that? Today's text gives us God's gracious purpose and proclamation from this strange action. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's word today, we have with us returning guest, Pastor Rick Jones. Pastor Jones serves as chaplain and vice president of spiritual life at the Dakota Boys and Girls Ranch in Minot, North Dakota. Pastor Jones, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Thanks. Good morning, Pastor Apple. As we get started today, Pastor Jones, let's talk context. We're in the middle of Jeremiah's book of comfort or his book of consolation. And previously, it's been a lot of poetic preaching from Jeremiah. But in today's text, we actually get more of a narrative, something that Jeremiah does. And he tells us that the setting at the very opening part of our text. So help us with that context for today, for this text particularly, and anything that you find helpful from Jeremiah's ministry as a whole as we get started. Yeah, well, um, you're right on, right in the beginning of this passage, uh, we get a lot of contextual information. Um, We see that the narrative is taking place during the Babylonian siege of Jerusalem. Um, So this is right in the middle of the siege. We have allusions to actually the the mounds of earth and stuff that have been set up later in the the section that we're going to be looking at. But um, probably not a happy time for, for Jerusalem right now. They're surrounded by this enemy kingdom that is seeking to take them from their land and they know that it's only a matter of time and they're going to be, you know, dispersed. We are on the cusp of the exile here. That's, that's the time frame that we're looking at. Um, the, the text tells us um, it's the, the 10th reign of the year of Zedekiah and the 18th year of Nebuchadnezzar um, or Nebuchadnezzar, however we want to pronounce that this morning. Uh but it's interesting. They give us both dates, the, the Judean calendar, as well as the Babylonian calendar to give us that, that bigger historical perspective. This is, this is an event that concerns not just Jerusalem, not just Judea, but it is taking place within that entire uh, near Eastern world. That's, that's who's involved. Um, looking at those two calendars and when we know the, the exile happened, we're likely setting down in uh, either 588 or 587 BC, but it's it's shortly before the actual exile, the fall of Jerusalem. Um, when we we get this taking place, um, Jeremiah is on house arrest uh, because he is being held captive in the palace um, because he said some things in his preaching that the king apparently didn't like, um, namely that uh, by the way the Babylonians are going to carry us away. And uh, the king didn't like to hear that, obviously. Um, he's telling them that this is punishment for their sinfulness, their lack of faithfulness. They've forsaken you know, God's decrees, God's laws. And so this is what needs to happen. Uh, the king doesn't want to hear this because his people don't want to hear it. And uh, the punishment is, is house arrest. Um, and we get a little bit more contextual piece here um, for why it's, it's this purchase of land. His cousin, um, Hanamel, uh, comes in and offer, makes him this offer. And we're thinking, well, if there's a siege going on, why is Hanamel even able to get through the Babylonian lines? How is he able to get into Jerusalem to, to make this offer? And the, the answer to that comes a little later in the text. I think it's alluded to, as you mentioned, in, in chapter 34. Uh, and then again, I believe in chapter 37 and 38, it talks about uh, the Egyptians came and, and started a battle with the Babylonians. And so they had to take forces from Jerusalem to go find, fight that battle. So another sort of time of the, of the context of the narrative here, Hanmel is able to come to Jerusalem because there's a lull in the fighting, a lull in the siege. But um, 
right on the cusp of the exile because the siege is happening, terrible things, for, terrible uh, living arrangements for the people of Jerusalem. They're, they're slowly being starved to death, basically, and they can't do anything without um, fear of attack from the Babylonians. Um, and we're going to eventually see Jerusalem fall, and that's where the book of Lamentations comes in, also written by Jeremiah, and he's called the weeping prophet oftentimes because of these very things. He sees the destruction of God's people. He sees them being carried off into exile. He sees the downfall of God's holy city. Um, so that's kind of where we're sitting. All right. So this is the the bitter end, almost the bitter end for yeah. the city of Jerusalem, for the kingdom of Judah. And as you said, we've got that that note later in the book of Jeremiah that's going to remind us of that that moment toward the end where Babylon was forced to break their siege for a moment to deal with the Egyptian army. Given the back and forth in this text, that's likely the situation that we're talking about. You've mentioned a couple of the the characters. I use that word with air quotes. The the people who are involved. <laughs> yeah. In this account already, uh, Pastor Jones, as, as we get started, some of these are going to be familiar to us. You know, obviously, we've been talking a lot about Jeremiah, and we've we've heard a little bit about Zedekiah and Nebuchadnezzar. You've mentioned a couple others that, that maybe aren't as familiar names and, and don't show up in other parts of the, the book of Jeremiah. Who are the main players in this text? What do we, we need to know about them as we begin to look at what happens? Sure. Um, it's... I mean, just to open it, Jeremiah, he's God's faithful prophet to Judah during the mid-6th century BC, um, which the context has already kind of showed us. Uh, his name means the Lord will raise up or possibly sent by the Lord, both perfect um, perfect names for a prophet, one who's sent to go and, and lift, bring words that should raise people up. Uh, but then also in, in this sense, um, his name really... I think really is is mirrored in the message that uh, that he gets to proclaim here with the action of, of buying the land. You know, the Lord will still raise up His people even after a time of of punishment, a time of discipline, a time of of brokenness. They will be raised up, and that's going to be God's doing. That's going to be His promise. So His name really fits with this passage. Um, Zedekiah is the current king of Judah. His name means the Lord is my justness or my righteousness, which I find very ironic since he is holding Jeremiah in house arrest for being faithful. So Zedekiah acting contrary to his name here, uh, he is not acting just, he is not acting righteous. And so his actions are anything but what his name describes. They're um, direct contention to the righteous judgment that God is going to bring on, on the people of Jerusalem. And then uh, we get two other characters here. We get Baruch, who is mentioned elsewhere in, in the book um, of Jeremiah, but this is Jeremiah's scribe or amanuensis, so sort of a official record keeper and maybe page would be a, a decent way to describe some of his, his jobs. Uh, the name means blessed, um, so that's kind of kind of interesting. In service to the, the one who delivers the word of God, he is blessed to do so. Uh, he becomes the official record keeper. He's the one that is entrusted with official duties on behalf of Jeremiah. And then uh, the the other character here or, or person in the, in the narrative is Hanamel, which is Jeremiah's cousin. Uh, the name means God is gracious. And the uncle's name is Shalom. So related to Shalom, which is the idea of God's perfect peace, uh, a completed contentment, sort of uh, an idea there. And so God is gracious is the offspring of God's perfect peace. I think that's a beautiful uh, sort of pair of names there. Uh, and what's really interesting with Hanamel is he comes in to be an instrument and, and deliverer of God's promise of grace. Uh, this, this ability to buy land and that the prophet is going to buy land in the midst of a siege seems ridiculous. Uh, but when we look at what that means, it means God's going to restore the people. He's going to uh, be gracious and deliver them. And so Hanamel, God is gracious, being the one that provides the outlet for that promise, that symbol of, of that promise is a, a pretty fitting description as well. So lots of interesting things with the names here. Uh, further fleshing out that context for, for who's doing what in this passage. Um, but yeah, I, I think always... The, the Old Testament especially uses the details uh, for some of these poetic features. And I think um, the names here are really, really highlights of that. 
I think you're right. I mean, whenever the Old Testament gives sort of what seem like strange details to us, it's it's maybe not the details we would have included, but when those unusual details are in there, that's where we should really be paying attention because that's often where the author is directing our attention. So Jeremiah is going to direct our attention in these various ways in, in our text for today. We're in Jeremiah chapter 32. I'll read the first part, which recounts this buying of this field. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the 10th year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, which was the 18th year of Nebuchadnezzar. At that time, the army of the king of Babylon was besieging Jerusalem, and Jeremiah the prophet was shut up in the court of the guard that was in the palace of the king of Judah. For Zedekiah, king of Judah, had imprisoned him, saying, Why do you prophesy and say, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am giving this city into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall capture it. Zedekiah, king of Judah, shall not escape out of the hand of the Chaldeans, but shall surely be given into the hand of the king of Babylon, and shall speak with him face to face and see him eye to eye. And he shall take Zedekiah to Babylon, and there he shall remain until I visit him, declares the Lord. Though you fight against the Chaldeans, you shall not succeed. Jeremiah said, The word of the Lord came to me. Behold, Hanamel, the son of Shalom, your uncle, will come to you and say, Buy my field that is, at, that is at Anathoth, for the right of redemption by purchase is yours. Then Hanamel, my cousin, came to me in the court of the guard, in accordance with the word of the Lord, and said to me, Buy my field that is at Anathoth, in the land of Benjamin, for the right of possession and redemption is yours. Buy it for yourself. Then I knew that this was the word of the Lord. And I bought the field at Anathoth from Hanamel, my cousin, and weighed out the money to him, seventeen shekels of silver. I signed the deed, sealed it, got witnesses, and weighed the money on scales. Then I took the sealed deed of purchase, containing the terms and conditions and the open copy. And I gave the deed of purchase to Baruch, the son of Neriah, son of Masiah, in the presence of Hanamel, my cousin, in the presence of the witnesses who signed the deed of purchase, and in the presence of all the Judeans who were sitting in the court of the guard. I charged Baruch in their presence, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Take these deeds both this sealed deed of purchase and this open deed and put them in an earthenware vessel that they may last for a long time. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought in this land. That's through verse 15, the scene where Jeremiah is told to buy the field and, and actually does so. After that, we'll, we'll encounter a prayer of Jeremiah. We'll pick that up later. So Pastor Jones, as, as we've been talking about, the first couple of verses really set the context. We get the the timeline both from the people of Judah as well as the, the Babylonian timeline, setting that historical context, grounding it very well for us in reality. This is real history that we're talking about. Yeah. Uh, we find out that, that Jeremiah is imprisoned, as you said, probably some kind of house arrest there in, in the house of Zedekiah in the palace. And then we get this, this scene where, where Zedekiah is saying why he imprisoned him, and he wants to know why, why he's preached these things. Uh, take us into to what Zedekiah, his accusations against Jeremiah are. Well, yeah, he's, he, you know, he's the king for God's people, so everything he does should be the right choice, right? I mean, I assume that's what Zedekiah is thinking, because um, otherwise— how arrogant of you to imprison a, 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 a preacher just for telling you, you know, what's happening. He's supposed to, that's Jeremiah's job is to proclaim the word of the Lord. And so when Zedekiah hears a word from the Lord, that is not what he wants to, wants to hear, excuse me, not what he thinks he should be hearing. Uh, he gets very angry. It's, it's like, it even says, right. He's, it's asking of the question in the text is, is is this is this why is this not why you're you're captive? It's it's exactly this because you're you're preaching that the Chaldeans are supposed to win the the Babylonians are supposed to take over the city. That's that can't be right. And so uh, it's 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 seems like a basic political motivation here. I, I don't see any other way around it. Uh, Zedekiah heard uh, a message he didn't like, and so he he jails the messenger, and that. Uh, that's supposed to solve the problem, but you know, with the faithful prophet, it's not going to going to change his his word. It's not going to change the word of the Lord. He needs to continue to proclaim the truth, and that is that Israel has sinned. They've they've gone away from 
God's word. They've gone away from God's will. And so there's always punishment for sin. The punishment this time happens to be the destruction of Jerusalem and the exile of the people. Um, but in the midst of that uh, message of doom and gloom in the, the, the midst of this, this terrible reality that's on the horizon. Um, God provides another word, and that word is going to be that, yes, this is, this is harsh, but there's going to be a redemption. There's going to be a restoration. There's going to be a, a, a gracious gift to the people, um, and that's going to be the restoration of the land, the restoration of the people, the release of the people. And to demonstrate that, to, to show this promise, the, the word that comes is, is Jeremiah by a field. Um, again, seems ridiculous when there's an army outside the gate, um, but uh, that's, that's God's way of, of telling them, I'm faithfully promising you, like I always faithfully promise you, there will be hope. And so that's um, you know, verses 6 through 8, Jeremiah sharing that vision. Uh, the event is, is that there's going to be a fulfillment of, of God's grace again. It's, mm-hmm. it's going to be, I'm going to buy a field meaning I'm going to be able to return to this land to enjoy that field, but uh, it's going to, it's going to hurt first. Right. And I mean, I think that that does make it fit within what we, again, we we often call the book of comfort or the book of consolation. Jeremiah 30 through 33 are are filled with these messages of hope. And, and first when you're, you know, when you're reading those first couple of verses and it's a recounting of Jeremiah being under house arrest and what Jeremiah has been preaching and maybe wondering, well, what's, what's going on? Where's the comfort? And, and that does come in in verses six and following. I, I think it's you know Zedekiah asks Jeremiah, "Why are you prophesying these things?" Yeah. Yeah. And and then Jeremiah starts telling him, you know, how the word of the Lord came to him and and what that word of the Lord is, and we we find out in great detail as we'll see. Do you think Jeremiah answers the question why he does why he's preaching like this as he as he recounts this vision? If and if so. Because I'm not sure what the answer to the why question is. And maybe Zedekiah doesn't need the answer to the why question. So Jeremiah just sort of says, look, this is what you really need to know, dear king. But but, but do you have, a, I mean, is he yeah. answering that why question or is he really just sort of redirecting his attention to something more important? Yeah, I, I don't, I'm with you. I don't see him answering the, the direct question from King Zedekiah here. Instead, I think it's more of a, you already know. <laughs> I've, been yeah, proclaiming, right. I've been proclaiming it for a while. That's why I'm here. Um, and so let me share with you the, the good news that's coming. Uh, you know, maybe it's, it's a redirection. You know, he's so, he, maybe he, maybe I'm going to, maybe Zedekiah is so hurt by the law, uh, that he needs the gospel now. And if, if not, that's fine too. <laughs> but, yeah. you know, uh, in any case, Jeremiah gives another word. He, he starts preaching a, a new a new message, uh, and that's about this this field. And it's really interesting. Um, so while he he ignores, I don't know if he ignores it, but he, he doesn't answer the question of the king. Uh, and so instead, he almost introduces us to a question that he had. You know, he's he's laying out the the vision that he received. Um, he shares the vision um, that God gave him that the event that must be fulfilled, and we're going to see it. Uh, it's in, in it's, he, he says, the word of the Lord came to me, but then he finishes uh, the, the passage after his, his cousin showed up. It's, he says, then I knew that this was the word of the Lord. Um, it almost feels as if he's, he's not really sure God's instruction is, is really God's word until it has happened just as it was foretold. So uh, I don't know, is this a glimpse into the prophet being careful in his discretion of what truly is and is not God's word? Or is it a testimony to just how ridiculous the, the message, the, the promise of hope is in the midst of a siege? Is that uh, even the prophet is doubting here, perhaps? I, I don't know. Um, but So I've, I've actually got a thought on that, Pastor Jones, because previously it, I, I, I wondered about that, too. That, you know, you get this, Jeremiah says, this is what the Lord said to me. And then he says, and then it happened. And then I knew it was the word of the Lord. Yeah. What, what my mind went to was in chapter 28, Jeremiah is dealing with a false prophet by the name of Hananiah. Yeah. And, and Hananiah, this is also during the reign of Zedekiah. Mm-hmm. Hananiah is saying, hey, those, those folks that have already been taken into exile along with the vessels from the temple, they're going to come back real soon in two years. 
and Jeremiah says, hey, Hananiah, that sounds great. I hope the Lord does that. But remember that all the prophets who came before us, they they didn't proclaim peace. They, they proclaimed God's judgment. Yep. And, and, and he says, and Jeremiah tells Hananiah this, that as for the prophet who prophesies peace, when the word of that prophet comes to pass, then it will be known that the Lord has truly sent the prophet. That's that's Jeremiah 28, verse 9. And I, I wonder if, if maybe that's what's going on in Jeremiah's own mind here. He, he hears this word from the Lord that sounds like a word of peace, which it does turn out to be. And he thinks, well, that's not what I've been preaching all along. And then when the Lord actually fulfills it, then he knows, oh, this is the word of the Lord because yeah. the peace is being, I mean, I, that's that's the way that I understand it. Absolutely. He's using his own formula to, to, you know, not just justify to those, but even to himself. Yep. This is, we always have to test the word. And when it proves itself to be true and sure, that's how we know it is the word from the Lord. So, I mean, I, yeah, I think that's what's going on. So then that, that sets the stage. Jeremiah says, this is what the Lord told me to do. This is what the Lord provided to happen. And then as, as the text continues into verse nine, we start to get into to quite a bit of detail. And so maybe, you know, before we talk a whole lot about the, the graciousness of this event, which we may have to pick up on the other side of the break, let's, let's just talk about the, the mechanics of this. Cause there's a, there's sure. a lot of you know, was the sixth century BC economics happening right here in this text? Yeah. So um, we can, yeah, let's, uh, we'll sidestep the, what the promise really means here and go to the, yeah, the mechanics. That's good. We'll get there. No doubt. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So the verse it's verses nine through 15. Right? Jeremiah is faithfully listening to the Lord's instruction and he redeems the land. Um, the price of 17 shekels of silver. Um, I think that's something like a little more than six and a half ounces um, and I think, I mean, I don't know how that compares to the price of silver today, but I think today silver is like $2,700 an ounce. Um, but for a, a parcel of land, that's probably still an incredible price, um, which makes sense because, you know, a siege is on. Right. Uh, the money here, they'd say, and I even weighed it out because money would have needed to be weighed because there wasn't yet a system of, of coined currency for like a common and, and standard exchange. You know, we've got in the United States, all of our money, our currency, the, the physical currency is backed by the promise that it is worth as much as, as it says it is. They don't have that sort of a system in place. And so everything is done by the actual weight. What is the actual weight of this silver? What is the actual weight of this gold? Um, and so that's what the, the shekel actually refers to the weight that it, that it, it represents, not just like a coin. So, uh, yeah, definitely given us insights into the currency system and how trade was facilitated um, so long ago. But then the description, excuse me, the description of the procedure uh, is extremely detailed as well. It includes the witnesses. And um, when we look at how that document was prepared and preserved, it matches many archaeological finds from the ancient Near East, including hundreds of these uh, sort of contracts and deeds of sale and things that we find in Jerusalem or in the Jerusalem area. Um, I believe, yeah, it's several hundred. And I, and I heard at some point we've even seen some with the name Baruch on them. Um, and it's supposed to be this very same Baruch. So he uh, definitely lends some really interesting historical insights to the text there. Um, but how, how they would do this um, the document would be duplicated, right? It talks about there's one that's sealed up, but then there's another open version of the document. Um, so you got the official sealed document. That's the one that goes in the record vault and things like that. But then they have an unsealed copy to be used for review, like a re like having a receipt so they can look at the terms of the contract whenever they need to. Um, I even read that um, the sealed copy would be rolled over. So they roll it up and then leather straps would be used to tie through the document. They punch a hole in it or, or something or be sealed with leather straps. And those straps um, or sometimes the document itself would then be sealed with clay or maybe wax, but clay is the ones that we, we see because it survives to this day. Um, they depress it with a signet ring or they, they find cylindrical stones with individual carvings on them that serve as, as a personal seal 
basically works as your signature. Um, so it makes it all very official. There's no mistaking who did this, this transaction because of that seal. Um, and then Jeremiah even says, now place that document inside of a, a, an earthen vessel, a, a clay jar, um, so that it lasts a long time. That's how they would preserve things. The text tells us this is exactly uh, what they do uh, and why they would do it. So it would, it's an official document. It, it's going to survive for a long time now. Um, we aren't told exactly how long that's going to be in the text, um, but we do know uh, that clay jars keep things um, preserved for a long time because the Dead Sea Scrolls were all kept in clay jars and they lasted over 2,000 years. So that's a, a pretty good testament to uh, to their, their power. I mean, I don't even think we've got a little fireproof safe in our house to keep birth certificates and things in. I don't know that it would last several thousand years. It's pretty incredible. Uh, and yet the promise that God is making with Jeremiah's purchase is one that's not going to just be for the time frame of the exile. It's really the promise of, of God's grace and salvation that lasts for all of eternity. So even in the just punishment for sin, which is what they're going to see carried out, God will graciously call us back and make us a part of his nation, a part of his people. That's that's pretty impressive. Um, Certainly. And and the the methodology that, that you've laid out for us described there in Jeremiah 32 is going to help it reinforce that message of God's grace. And we'll we'll talk more about that on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharp Iron here on KFUO. We're talking Jeremiah chapter 32 with Pastor Rick Jones. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233, 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Monday, July 12th. We're studying Jeremiah chapter 32, verses 1 to 25 with Pastor Rick Jones, chaplain and vice president of spiritual life at the Dakota Boys and Girls Ranch in Minot, North Dakota. Pastor Jones, prior to the break, you you were laying out for us the ins and outs of the mechanics of what Jeremiah does in terms of the real estate purchase, the economics behind it, the, the great detail that he goes to in order to buy this field and, and to have the record of the purchase preserved for quite some time using those clay jars. As we think about the what the Lord is going to communicate by this, there's one, one item that we need to pick up from verses six through eight, where the the word that comes to Jeremiah from his cousin is that he's told to buy my field that is at Anathoth for the right of redemption by purchase is yours. This this right of redemption language language more than just you know buy some real estate. What's the significance yeah. of that right of redemption? Yeah, uh, I mean, on the surface of it, we can look at it. Well, it's like we still redeem things when we're talking about purchases today, too, right? Like you redeem an offer or redeem a coupon. Um, here it's a little bigger than that, but the same sort of base. He has the opportunity. Um, he's got a legal opportunity to to be the one that that takes advantage of this this deal, this sale, and so he's going to redeem that opportunity. But with it built into God's law and with it built into the regulations of His people, uh, God using a sign of His faithfulness, utilizing a kinsman's right of redemption. I think uh, should raise some flags for us. It reminds me, obviously, of the book of Ruth with Boaz, the kinsman redeemer. Um, but in both instances, it's through God's legal code that he laid out for his people that he provides his faithfulness and provision. That's how they are going to be demonstrated through this this idea of redeeming it, taking advantage of the opportunity that is is presented, um, making good on it, fulfilling that offer. That is the idea of redeeming it, letting it be worth its its value, worth that opportunity uh, that is that is there. Um, for Jeremiah, it's it's because of the family relationship here, and it's even in his hometown, um, Anathoth, Thoth or Anathoth, um, Levite town, three miles northeast of Jerusalem, um, in the middle of a siege. 
three miles north of the city. I would imagine it's already overrun with the Babylonian armies, uh, making, again, this sale of land simply a ridiculous proposition. And yet, uh, this is how God's going to do it. Through uh, their their terms, their their code of how they will conduct things, providing that opportunity of redemption for the those close, those who are part of the family, he is making his his faithfulness known. So that's that's kind of the redemption language there. Um, but again, this whole thing uh, in the midst of of the siege, it's 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 the exile is right out around the corner. So a looming defeat and exile at the hands of the the Chaldeans, the Chaldeans. Um, God's message still provides a, a narrative pointing forward to divine grace with redemption. Um, obviously, we're going to point it forward to the ultimate redemption in Christ. Uh, but here we see that pattern already prefigured for us in the Old Testament and something as simple as a deed for land. Um, but it's, again, with an official sign, official blessing. Um, that's what makes he's proving that his vision is is trustworthy because it happens exactly as he promised. And he's doing it with that transaction, buying back, purchasing um, the purchase power. And we talk about the the great transaction. Uh, we we provide our sin and God provides us uh, with the lifeblood of, of the Savior to purchase us from sin, death, and the devil. It's It's that sort of redemption. Obviously not uh, quite the same um, weight here in, in Jeremiah's passage, but it's pointing forward to that great redemption. And I think that's obviously done on purpose. That's how God works. He, he lays out his plan, he lays out his promise, and then he demonstrates it to us over and over and over again with, with tangible signs and promises. And here we have one that is simply done with real estate, which is... I don't know. There's there's something there to be said about the mundane being profound. So I mean, as as you're talking there, and as I was reflecting on, as as you said, just this very you know mundane act of buying a piece of land, although certainly set in the the strange setting of Jerusalem has just been besieged. Uh, my my mind went to, and, and I, tell me if you think we can make this connection. It, in Matthew chapter 13, when Jesus is telling his series of parables of the kingdom of heaven, there, he's got a couple of really short ones. And, and one of them in verse, it's just one verse in Matthew 13, it's verse 44. He says that the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. So now I, I know it's not a perfect parallel, but you have the, the language of buying a field. And, and I know there's some con, or question about how precisely to to interpret that parable of Jesus. The way that I've most recently understood it because of a variety of, of, of pastors and professors who have convinced me that this is a, a good way to look at it is that in that parable, Jesus is the man who goes and buys the field and, and, and what's his treasured possession? Well, it's us. He, mm-hmm. he buys us, which seems kind of strange. Why would, why would the Lord want to purchase me a sinner? And that's where, you know, like a passage like Romans five comes in where, where Paul says, you know, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And that's where God shows his great love. So, I, I mean, I, I wonder if, if we can connect Jeremiah 32 with Matthew 13, such that in, in Jeremiah 32, part of the graciousness of God that, that Jeremiah is given to proclaim is that like, look at, look at Jerusalem, look at Judah at this moment. It's been besieged. It's almost completely destroyed. Jerusalem's hanging on by a thread. And yet the Lord says, I'm going to restore this land. I'm going to restore this people. I'm going to be gracious to them. It doesn't make any sense in the world that the Lord would be gracious to these people who've rebelled against him over and over again. Zedekiah's example A, standing there in front of Jeremiah. And yet Jeremiah is given this message to say, the Lord's still going to be gracious to you. He's going to keep his promise. And ultimately, as you've been saying, pointing us forward to the way he keeps his promise in Christ. Uh, what, do you, what do you think, Pastor Jones? Yeah, no, I think, I don't think you're you're off base there. I think at the very least, uh, when Jesus is, is giving those parables to the people, it's it's people that are familiar with the Jewish law code, the Jewish scripture, the Jewish history. And so even if they might not be familiar with this specific passage of Jeremiah, they're going to know the legal code that 
this this passage is is demonstrating. And so I would imagine they're going to at least be familiar with this concept of of the right of redemption. And so if if that's what it's taking to get that prized possession, I think God's using his word in that way to connect the dots for the people. Um, but uh, yeah, the, the nuances of the subtleties of it, obviously they might not be thinking this passage specifically, unless Jesus would specifically say, you know, as the prophet redeemed the field. So um, then maybe, but I think the the concepts are definitely there uh, with the familiarity that they would have had with, with God's word and God's law. Um, but again, just, Jesus using those those little pieces to really show the power and the fullness of, of God's grace. You know, the sign of the blessing, the sign of, of the redemption in, in the vision is a land transaction between Jeremiah and his cousin. Um, and the, that cousin who is providing this opportunity, his name means God is gracious. Um, I think that's that's pretty, pretty important here. Um, especially on the, the eve of the exile. The exile is, of course, going to be awful. It will be terrible. It will be painful, shameful, and humiliating. The people of Judah will be stripped of their land, their possessions, their livelihoods, their status, but it will not last forever. This is not an eternal punishment. This is not a wiping of the people off the face of the earth. God has every intention of graciously, again, Hanamel, uh, graciously bringing them back to that promised land. Uh, that is, I think, the point of, of Jeremiah purchasing the land here. It is that physical demonstration of God's promise, what he's going to do. It will be completely foolish to buy land that you'll never get to take ownership of and enjoy. And so the Lord instructing Jeremiah to redeem his right up to the property shows God's steadfast love and grace. It shows that even in the punishment of the exile, he will restore his people. They will be redeemed and called back together as a people and nation of God's beloved children in the future. The purchase of land before being sent into exile is going to be that symbolic action uh, of a dramatic promise of that future hope. Uh, And again, yes, pointing forward to the perfect hope, uh, the perfect redemption, where it's not just about redeeming land, not just being returned from exile physically, uh, but we have the ultimate redeemer who has redeemed us from the exile of sin, death, and the devil, the one who who has redeemed us from the exile of oblivion. And that's this is a, a, a precursor of that that uh, redemptive act on the cross. Yeah, I mean, it's a very powerful action and a powerful promise that the Lord will keep to bring his people back, to restore mm-hmm. them, pointing us forward to Jesus. In response to that, Jeremiah prays, and that's where we pick up the text now in verse 16 of chapter 32. After I had given the deed of purchase to Baruch, the son of Neriah, I prayed to the Lord, saying, Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. You show steadfast love to thousands, but you repay the guilt of fathers to their children after them. O great and mighty God, whose name is the Lord of hosts, great in counsel and mighty indeed, whose eyes are open to all the ways of the children of man, rewarding each one according to his ways and according to the fruit of his deeds. You have shown signs and wonders in the land of Egypt and to this day in Israel and among all mankind and have made a name for yourself as at this day. You brought your people Israel out of the land of Egypt with signs and wonders, with a strong hand and outstretched arm and with great terror. And you gave them this land, which you swore to their fathers to give them, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they entered and took possession of it. But they did not obey your voice or walk in your law. They did nothing of all you commanded them to do. Therefore, you have made all this disaster come upon them. Behold, the siege mounds have come up to the city to take it. And because of sword and famine and pestilence, the city is given into the hands of the Chaldeans who are fighting against it. What you spoke has come to pass, and behold, you see it. Yet you, O Lord God, have said to me, Buy the field for money and get witnesses though the city is given into the hands of the Chaldeans. That's where our text stops for today, the end of Jeremiah's prayer there in Jeremiah 32, verse 25. So Pastor Jones, let's talk about this prayer of Jeremiah. In the first couple of verses, as he begins to address the Lord to whom he prays, how does he identify him? Yeah, so 
in the extended prayer here, um, he's, he, he starts off by declaring who God is with two descriptions of God's power. First, the Lord Yahweh, that's the Lord God, the Lord Yahweh um, is the God of all creation. Uh, and then he is the, so he's acknowledging he's the artist and architect behind the whole universe. And then he goes to the second description. The second description simply says, nothing is too hard for the Lord. He can do anything he's telling us. And um, alluding again back to this ridiculous thing that he's asking Jeremiah to do. Um, if he can, if, if he can promise to redeem us, even from the exile, he's, he's going to do it. He's going to fulfill that promise. And then he goes on to, you know, give a, a translation history or excuse me, a salvation history uh, to further back up that, that claim he's made on God's behalf. Nothing is too hard for him. Look at what he's done for us already. And that's how the, the next section of the prayer is going to go. Um, it's interesting. Uh, I guess we would say Jeremiah responds faithfully to receiving the word of God, right? He responds with prayer, a, a prayer of, of thanksgiving and, and, and again, um, proclaiming the promises that, that God has, has already demonstrated. It's a, it's a prayer done in the presence of, of those that are there, probably not a huge crowd, and it doesn't seem to be like a corporate prayer that we would do in worship on, on Sunday or something, um, but definitely a prayer of response to, to what he has received from God. In this case, a word of hope, and that's where he's going to, going to keep bringing this prayer back to as he recounts that salvation history. That's kind so, of a large section there. Sure. And I mean, this is this is typical when we get prayers from the scriptures, particularly from the prophets, that they will yes. go through the history of, of God's people and what he's done for them. And to this point, it's going to center on the Exodus, because at, at this yes. moment, the Exodus is still the main salvation event that that God has given his people. So, Pastor Jones, feel free to, to pick out anything, particularly, I want to hear your thoughts, because you shared a few of them with me ahead of time, on this this land of milk and honey. You know, we, we, yeah, yeah, yeah. we know so much of the Exodus, and there's so many things we can say, but in my conversations about the Exodus here on Sharp Iron, I don't know that I've ever had anyone really take me into this this land of milk and honey and why it's significant that God gives them that kind of land. Can, uh, tell us tell us a little bit about that particularly as you go through this prayer. Yeah. So, well, as you already said, it's it's typical for Old Testament uh, to recount that salvation history. Um, we see it in the prophets, the Psalms, even just in, in general proclamations. Um, and that's that's important. Uh, it's reminding the people of who God is and, and by what he has done for them. And we continue this tradition today, right? The retelling of salvation history is what we're doing uh, when we point people to the cross. It's, it's that crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus is the pivot point of all of God's work, the Old Testament pointing forward and now us looking back. Um, but there's these other key points. And the Exodus is one of them. Obviously the Exodus itself pointing forward to the liberation we receive at the cross. But uh, yeah, um, whenever I see a land flowing with milk and honey, because that's what the promised land is promised to be, um, I think it means something. I think it's important um, because of what the land represents. The land is the place where the people get rest. It's the place where they get to experience God's blessings in their lives. And then he specifically says those blessings are going to include milk and honey. And I've, yeah, I've been told I have kind of a novel look at this, but I think it fits. So hopefully we're not going off the rails here, but here we go. <laughs> There's always been something about that description, milk and honey. It, it resonates with me and I'm not, I'm not sure what it is about the phrase itself, but the concept I think is beautiful. One of God's most enduring gifts to his people is that idea of a place that gives them milk and honey. And I can believe we can understand that as a shorthand for, in, for immediate and eternal provision. So we'll think about these two substances, milk and honey. So milk is sort of the immediate provision. Milk is something we drink to sustain us when we are very young. It is. It has everything we need. An infant lives off its mother's milk. Uh, it is the substance of life at our beginnings. We need it every day and drink it every day. If we don't drink it, it spoils and goes bad. And this is a sort of repetitive blessing. It, the milk provides for us over and over and over again. Honey, on the other hand, is something very different from milk. Honey is the only food on the planet that never spoils. 
Now, I know if you leave that little bottle or the little bear, you know, depending on which part of the country you're in, if you leave it in your, your cupboard without eating it, it will turn an opaque sort of gold or white. It'll harden and crystallize. But that's just a natural preservation of the honey. If you heat up some water and put that little bottle or jar in it, that honey will become just as good as new. Now, take the lid off, of course, so you don't build up all that pressure and you might have to stir it a couple of times, but it'll, it'll be, it'll flow again. It'll be that golden color and it'll flow again. It never goes bad. In fact, archeologists have found honeycombs in the pyramids of Egypt that are thousands of years old and the honey is still good. Now I'm not telling people they should eat honey that they find in pyramids and things, but apparently you can. And honey is a sweet, delicious treat that lasts forever. So, if the promised land was abundant with milk and honey, what is that supposed to mean for us? Because scripture speaks forward to us through the ages. Well, I think it is still true today. I think the promised land is still here. It is still a place um, of comfort. It is a place of rest and a place of provision for God's people. It is where God met the needs of the people in the Old Testament. And I think that's true today. It might not be geographic anymore, but we still do have a place where we gather around God's provision. We gather around his word and we gather around his blessings. God still provides ongoing and eternal gifts for his people. The promised land is the church, not like the building, the people, right? We gather together. We are the church and we, in our gathering, it's God's people gathering around his blessings that we might have and find that comfort, that peace, and that rest uh, from the brokenness in our lives. So, if the promised land then was flowing with milk and honey, you know, in the Old Testament, it should still be flowing with milk and honey today. And I think that it is because we have gifts from God that serve us like the milk and honey did in the Old Testament. So what gift do we get and receive over and over again from God that preserves us and sustains us, that demonstrates God's gracious provision? And I would say most, most of our students in our confirmation classes should be able to say, well, that sounds like the Lord's Supper. And we do. We receive it on a regular basis. It sustains and pre uh, preserves us in the faith by delivering God's grace tangibly to us on a regular schedule. Then honey, that sweet blessing that lasts forever, has to be baptism. It's the promise of God's goodness and salvation that never goes bad. Baptism is God's gift that never spoils. But also like honey, if we put it in the cupboard, ignore it, and don't enjoy its richness, we will get no benefit from our baptismal identity as God's beloved child. But it's still there, right? just as potent and wonderful as ever when we do come to our senses and return to God's grace. Even without a geographic location, God calls, gathers, and cares for his people. Uh, and so... If the promised land, God's promise for his people, is flowing with milk and honey, I think the promise of the church is flowing with milk and honey too. I like it, Pastor Jones. I mean, I, that that'll preach, and and I, I think it's <laughs> yes, you know preach. <laughs> that that'll preach, and 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 even you know, I mean, it's one of those things where, you, and I'm sure you've thought about this. You know, you're like, I I want to make this connection. I, I think you know, in the full scriptural sense of everything, speaking in a, in a terms of biblical theology, right? The full yeah. picture that God's word gives us. Yes, that that's precisely what God does with His gifts. He sustains us in a daily way. And he gives us an anchor to hold on to for all time. And I mean, I think that I think that fits very well. So that we we finish the the text here, Pastor Jones. It, yeah. As we as we move into the the final part of Jeremiah's prayer, we get again this honest acknowledgement from Jeremiah that what he's been preaching all along, the people haven't listened, they've not obeyed. That's why judgment is coming and in is in fact here at this very moment. But but he does end with that note of hope still. He yeah. ends with that matter of buying the field. So take us into those last couple of verses of, yeah. of Jeremiah's prayer. Yeah, so the prayer wraps up by bringing the hearer back to the present context, right? He's been recounting salvation history. Now he's back to the present moment. He even, he's talking about the siege. He even meant, references the siege engines or the mounds of earth that have been constructed around the city as Babylon just bides its time, wearing down Jerusalem's resources uh, and and their will, really, their will to fight and put up a defense. So the final lines of the prayer once again declare the siege and exile as part of God's plan for righteous justice against his people's sinfulness. They're, they're going away from the law. Uh, it will be terrible, but it is just. 
And as Jeremiah's prayer says, what you have spoke has come to pass and behold, you see it. So it is a clear explanation that the siege and exile are a demonstration that God is faithful to his word. If he makes a promise, it will be upheld, even if it is an undesirable one, such as punishment for sin, right? Uh, it's going to be just, but it's going to happen. A final, The final verse reassures Jeremiah and those who hear the prayer that the people will not be abandoned to the exile. God is providing them hope. As he was faithful in everything that has come before them in history, so he will be faithful now. The command to buy the field in God's um, is God's dramatic promise that the exile will not last forever. The people will return to the land. Jeremiah's purchase is a sign and a promise that redemption and hope are already assured. It is a done deal. It is God's plan. It has been declared, so it will come to pass. I think in that way that Jeremiah does come in, in a roundabout answer to Zedekiah's original question. Why Why is he preaching these things? Yeah. It's because it's what the Lord has said and what the Lord has said will happen. So this judgment that Jeremiah has been preaching, that's going to happen. But so will this promise that he's preaching here through the purchase of the land. That too will happen. And there's something for the for Zedekiah and for the people to cling to and hope. Pastor Jones, we've got about two minutes here to, to wrap things up in the morning. Final thoughts, help us to see once again Christ in Jeremiah 32. Sure. Uh, again, this is even in the midst of pain, even in the midst of brokenness, God's going to provide a, a faithful answer of, of love and grace for his people. Actions speak louder than words. And so the action of purchasing the land that has been seized by the Babylonians is God's promise of redemption for the people. It is a tangible promise that the hardship will not last forever, that there is hope and salvation on the horizon. The final section of the text lays out a beautiful example of prayer, calling on God's steadfast love and faithfulness as a source of hope and strength, even in the midst of a bleak and miserable situation. I think we can take this to heart ourselves as we live through terrible experiences, sometimes of our own doing, but oftentimes just of the world out there. Even in the midst of these trials, even in the midst of tragedy, God's promises are already there. They will come to pass as he has declared it. And we can point back to the place where he made it all happen, where he redeemed us once and forever in Christ's crucifixion and resurrection. It goes with us throughout all history, and it will continue to be our promise and, and banner of hope for the future. Pastor Rick Jones is chaplain and vice president of spiritual life at the Dakota Boys and Girls Ranch in Minot, North Dakota, helping us today with Jeremiah chapter 32, verses 1 to 25. Pastor Jones, thanks for being our guest today. Absolutely. Always a, always a pleasure. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about the book of Jeremiah or comments on this series, we'd love to hear from you. Send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org or use the KFUO app to send a message to us with the open mic feature. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.